this is two rabbis taking a biblical story and riffing on it. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theater. I'm Nathan. I'm Peter. Hi, Nathan. Hey, Peter. We uh, we talked about West Side Story a couple weeks ago, and now we have both seen the film. I've seen it twice. Oh, uh, shut up. I know. I well, I... Come on. <laughs> I loved it so much the first time. I thought, I wonder if I go back if I'll love it as much the second time. And I didn't. Um, not that I, you know, it, 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 when, when the, the first experience was kind of, for me anyway, being kind of bowled over by yeah. the, the beauty and the, the power of the vision. The second time I knew what I was expecting. So I was able to pay attention to details in a different kind of way. Um, but boy, that first viewing really, uh, it really, it really moved me. It was a, it was a pretty intense experience. I agree. I mean, it, all the elements. Uh, I've always loved Spielberg. Yeah. Um, his his uh, capacity to create. What I've what I've said to others is he. I, I think he paints on the screen, um, but with real life. Like yeah. there's no CGI here, or if there is, it's very little. Yeah. Um, Some of the stuff around the 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 rubble of Lincoln Center. I feel like some of that's got to be CGI, or at least. Yeah. Yeah, probably background painting, but still, yes. Uh, to your, there's not a lot of not a lot of special effects, and framing. Um, I mean, there's a point. Oh, and we should pause. So this is a spoiler alert for our faithful listeners. If you haven't seen the film, and if you want to have a fresh experience and don't want it spoiled, uh, turn this podcast off now and come back. To come back to it later when you've seen it. Yes, come back to it after you've seen it. On the other <laughs> hand, if you haven't. If you haven't seen it yet and you want a little primer on some things to look for, feel free to keep listening because, you know, Absolutely. the story is the story. We're not going to, you know, spoiler alert, he dies. He still gets shot. Um, <laughs> it's Romeo and Juliet. So <laughs> you you probably know what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, but we, we are going to we are going to the gangs dance. You know? <laughs> they they do dance. <laughs> they do sing. Indiana Jones makes no appearance, and there is no shark. If you're looking for, a... actually, one of my questions for you, I, I think Peter is like, to what degree, if you didn't go into that film knowing that it was a Steven Spielberg film, would you have? I mean, you you do have a love for Spielberg. I was thinking like, I don't know that I would know that this is a Spielberg film if right. I if I didn't know that walking into it. Well, his uh, I can't remember, and I didn't do my research before our conversation today, but. His father was a photographer and his mother was a musician or some kind of backstory like that for him. And um, uh, so his all of his films, in in my view, make great use of music. Yeah. Um, And he's able to not just underscore, but actually let the music in some ways take a take a starring role. uh, and cinematically, just his capacity to frame a picture. And the other thing I love about Spielberg, and it was absolutely true in West Side Story, and I think superior to the to the to the previous film, uh, is his clarity of vision and the clarity with which he unfolds the plot. Mm-hmm. There was no hesitation. Um, 
in knowing exactly who was who and where they came from. I found, for example, the ending of, of the film clearer than any stage production I've seen with Maria returning with her suitcase and meeting mm -hmm. Tony in the street. Like, I don't know how he does it. He just is very, very, his vision is very clear. Yeah. And he makes the plot read in a very accessible way. Yeah. Some of that, I think, I'm guessing, is to Tony Kushner's credit. Um, you know, he's, he's working with a with a real and 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 Kushner and Spielberg have worked together on a couple of films now. Kushner did the book to Lincoln, and I think one, maybe one other. So they're Munich. Munich that's right. That's right. Uh, Tony Kushner, famously, of course, uh, an award winning American playwright, Angels in America. The that the, the those two plays, I think, won in the Pulitzer Prize and a bunch of other awards. So a well a well respected American playwright and now uh, screenwriter who has kind of reimagined Arthur Lawrence original script to West Side Story and I think worked with Stephen Sondheim a little bit. Kushner and Sondheim yes. uh, sat down. I don't know that, that Sondheim really kind of worked directly on the film but did talk quite a bit with Kushner about I think Kushner kind of brought to Sondheim, here's what we want to do with this thing. Can we, you know, kind of can we have your blessing a little bit? Uh, and Sondheim did did kind of weigh in on some of the details of uh, reframing some of the songs and, and I think some of the backstories. And, that, and that's really, I think, what Kushner and Spielberg have brought to the, uh, to the material is giving these characters much richer uh, contexts and backstories. You know, in, in any good production of West Side Story, actors are going to make choices, right? They're going to, um, you know, this is the work of an actor. You always kind of imagine what what has shaped this person, where are they coming from? Some of that may or may not ever be clear to an audience, but actors in a production are always going to create these kind of richer backstories. I think what makes this film interesting is that Kushner and Spielberg are bringing those stories in a very kind of literal uh, bringing them to life in a certain kind of way, so the audience actually gets to, you know, gets to share a little bit of who these people are. And I suppose to a certain degree, especially with the sharks, there's a bit of a political agenda there, right? In some ways, this this production of West Side Story is responding to the pretty uh, robust critique of West Side Story that Latinx uh, and other kind of uh, writers and, and critics have, have kind of leveled at the film, that the sharks basically are a kind of monolith. There's not a lot of distinguishing features. They're just a gang. You get a little bit of a sense of Maria and Anita, but even those two characters, you know, who is Anita? Where does she come from? Uh, we, in, in, we know that Maria has just arrived, but we don't really, you know, she, she lives with her parents. We never see her parents. Um, so th th there's not a lot of effort by, you know, four gay Jewish creators writing in the mid-century <laughs> to imagine a real world of Puerto Rican immigrants to New York City in the 50s, right? They're, they're sort of treated as symbols, maybe antagonists, in a way that the, that the Jets really are given... Quite a bit. I mean, they, they get two songs. Um, a lot of time in West Side Story is really spent helping us understand who the Jets are. They have individual characters. You've got Arab, you've got Action, you've got Baby John, you've got Anybody's. They have uh, stories. They have individual yeah. stories in the way that the Sharks are really not uh, allowed to have in the original in the original material. And I think Spielberg and and, um, and Kushner are very deliberately trying to give the sharks the same kind of context. And more particularly, uh, a little bit of a sense of historical and political context, right? That the 1950s for Puerto Rican immigrants in New York would have been a very particular political context. I mean, you, you, you get, the, you get there's, there's one new song in, this, in the film version of West Side Story. They sing La Born Kenya, which is the, the Puerto Rican kind of national anthem. They sing the original revolutionary lyrics to this, right? Right.
rise up, rise up. Our machetes are ready. We're ready to kind of fight for our freedom. It's a, it's a freedom anthem. That's not the, those are not the lyrics to La Borinquena that you'll hear in Puerto Rico today. Uh, I think they, I think they've been outlawed. I think you can get in trouble if you sing those, or at least at some points in Puerto Rican history, you could, got, you could have gotten in trouble for singing those lyrics. But, but there's a, there's a real sense that the sharks are revolutionaries, right? Like they are. Um, they they have a sort of a political a political agenda at play that the that the earlier films really don't give you any sense of. Despierta borinqueño, que han dado la señal. Despierta de ese sueño, que es hora de luchar. A ese llamar patriótico, no arde tu corazón. Ven, no será simpático el ruido del cañón. Nosotros queremos la libertad. Nuestros machetes nos It's uh, significant that it's the first song that's yeah. sung. Yep. Um, and David Alvarez playing uh, Bernardo. Uh, uh, the actor was one of the three Billy Elliots when he was a kid. Oh, I didn't know that. I yeah. saw I saw a video of him as a, as a small child at the Tony Awards, and I wondered what he was <laughs> what he was doing there. He was, he was a Billy Elliot. Oh, he was a Billy Elliot of the three okay. boys who shared that role when Billy Elliot was on first on Broadway, shared the Tony award for best actor. Huh. And then he disappeared. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't, he left the theater world. He, he joined the army. He became a bit of a off the grid kind of guy and Spielberg and his casting director looked for him to huh. play Bernardo. Oh, um, interesting. And I think he's remarkable. In he, the is, he is. He is quite it's good. a remarkable performance. Yeah. And what I love just in terms of backstory uh, is giving Bernardo a backstory as a boxer. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And giving Tony the backstory of a, a kid who got involved in a violent altercation and has been away at reform school it's or prison i think he was up in austin yeah yeah Yeah, penitentiary Uh uh-huh um because one of the problems with west side story that i've always had especially in stage productions is that tony seems disconnected from the jets Mm -hmm. and his kind of violence at the end he's kind of a lovesick boy yeah and I, I've always found it hard to figure out how, and he's usually the cutest boy in the cast um, amongst them, uh, how he ends up killing Bernardo. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't it doesn't add up. But this, I thought Kushner's backstory here 
makes sense of that plot device. Yeah. Yeah. Made a lot of sense. Well, and it also, it also makes Bernardo and Tony kind of equivalents, right? Like both of them are trying to get out of the gang, right? You really get, in fact, you really, you really get it. There's a scene that, that Kushner writes where Bernardo first brings Chino home, right? Chino's not part of the gang, right? He's the, he's the, uh, he's an accountant. He's learning how to fix adding machines, right? He's a, he's a way out of the gang for Maria, but you, you get a sense of why Bernardo is so interested in, in partnering Maria and Chino up, right? Like he wants to keep his sister out of the violence. And you also get the sense that, you know, he himself is trying, kind of like Tony is, right? Like Bernardo never gets something coming. There's no version of that for Bernardo. But you get the sense that he, like Tony, is trying to uh, make, a, make a different kind of life for himself, that the world of street fighting is not what he ultimately wants for himself. Um, so in some ways, like, th- there, there's some interesting parallel play there between Tony and Bernardo and what they're looking for. And then, as you say, the, the, the backstory that Kushner gives to Tony makes sense of... Now, I, I have, I have, uh, I don't know that Ansel, Ansel Elgort plays this particularly convincingly. I have, I have some beef there, but I, I love the idea that Tony, as a character, is conceived of as a guy with a deep streak of violence at his heart yes. that he is aware of, that he, that scares him, that frightens him, and that then, as you say, right, uh, allows us to understand how, in a moment of anger and betrayal, when his best friend is killed, he can then turn and knife Bernardo, the brother of the yes. of the girl he's in love with. Um, I think that's a that's a that's a that makes Tony a much more interesting and compelling character i um i i i would love to see a, a an, an actor really kind of take that somewhere that's a little more interesting than ansel elgort's two facial expressions confused <laughs> and befuddled neither of which really um i feel like works <laughs> so that i'm just i've just outed myself as one who is not a huge fan of ansel elgort in this role although he sings he sings passably well and dances quite well i, I thought he did he and uh, he and the actor playing riff do, do a nice job with cool so I'll, I'll give him props for that. But I, I like, I, I, to your point, I like, I like the, the, the backstory that Kushner gives to these characters. I think that, as you say, it, it adds some color to the plot uh, that in some ways improves, I think, on what the original team is able to do with this story. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the Born Kina, if I'm saying it right, really stands as a counterpoint to the Jets song. Yeah. Um, and I think having it as the first, the, the first sung piece and having the sharks sing before the jets mm-hmm. and then having 40%, I think it is, of the dialogue within the film in Spanish yeah. without subtitles mm-hmm. is, I think, uh, Kushner and Spielberg making a statement about what's normative, yeah. uh, what's understood. And the uh, well, we may come back to this later, but the repeated uh, request from the police to the Latina community, Latinx community, speak English. Yeah, becomes quite offensive. Yeah, well, and Anita several times. She's also the. You get the sense that Anita is the one who is trying to make, uh, trying to make a bid on 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 living in the U.S. Right? She's the one in in the in the, in the family settings who who keeps reminding everybody, let's speak English, let's speak, let's practice, let's practice. I in ways that I sometimes thought like this is a little, uh, this feels a little over the top to me, a little kind of I don't know heavy hitting. Uh, but she's she's often the one who reminds Maria and Bernardo um, to speak English. And you get the sense that maybe that's you know to make sure that the audience doesn't lose important plot points. Uh, but this this kind of, you you do get a sense of the tension in this world between the language that we that we know our, our, our native language and then our our sense of being outsiders in this world and needing to figure out ways to code switch. Right? There's a lot of code switching that happens for Bernardo, for Maria, especially for Anita um, as they engage this world. And, and to your point, right? That their their constant reminder 
foreigners from outside their world that they have to speak English. You know, no, no, no Spanish in the gym. Uh, when the police officer comes, right, like he makes them speak English in front of him. Um, the, the world of the, the kind of you know the world of white supremacy is is illustrated really, uh, really clearly for these characters. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of interesting play with language in this film. My my sense is that even if you don't speak Spanish, uh, English speaking audiences can follow the Spanish pretty easily. In some ways, it's our opportunity to experience what people who don't speak English probably experience all the time when they go to English language cinema. Um, especially yeah. with a story as iconic as this one, you can follow it pretty well. Yeah, I had no problem following it at all. Um, and apparently, from what I've read, if you speak Spanish, there's a lot. It's funnier. Yeah. There's some humor in there that that goes by, but it gave, you know, I mean, I don't even really want to introduce the word authenticity because then you get into a whole bunch of stuff. And for heaven's sakes, it's a musical. You know, they they dance with a gun. Um, they sing in the streets. Um, so but it does, I think, as you said, give uh, more than a nod, I think, uh, honoring um the 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 Puerto Rican community at the time, um, and not just assuming that everybody always speaks English, right. especially folks of of this uh, in this in this context in this in this story. Yeah, yeah. So we get a great um, intern. We were talking about Spielberg earlier and his capacity to paint the screen, as I would use it, with with color and life and vibrancy. The dance at the gym, the mambo, um, was an extraordinary, it was, there were several times when we were watching the film that I said out loud, Thomas, he'll tell me to shut up, you know, wow. It was just a, it was a wow because the screen exploded and the uh, Bernstein's orchestration played both by the New York Phil and the LA Phil, depending on mm -hmm. which section they recorded boomed through the Dolby sound system yeah. uh, or whatever it was. Uh, and, and my point is Bernstein sounded fresh mm -hmm. somehow. It didn't sound to me, to my ears, it didn't sound dated in the 1950s. Yeah. It was still really challenging harmonically and rhythmically challenging harmonically and rhythmically. Um, and the combination of, of the choreography, the music, and the cinematography in the dance at the gym made for an absolutely splendid experience for, for me anyway. I think Justin Peck is the is the choreographer, although uh, Jerome Robbins is, of course, credited as the original choreographer. And my, my understanding is apparently if you if you license West Side Story, you are required to do Jerome Robbins' choreography. Um, if, you, right? if you're a community theater or a high school or even a professional production of West Side Story, um, it's, his choreography is a, 
comes along with the licensing. You don't make any deviations from Jerome Robbins' choreography. Justin Peck is, of course, doing new choreography for the film, but very much based, I think, in Jerome Robbins' original, um, original choreography of the piece. And it, as you say, is explosive. It's an incredible scene. Uh, the colors, the lights, everything about it is the one thing. The one thing that I did miss from the the Robert Wise uh, 1960, I think 61 film was the um, the sense that the dance is happening in a Catholic school gymnasium. I, th- there's a little bit of me that that misses that little nod to the fact that you know, at least in the in 1961, we assume that although these are you know. Uh, Immigrant, Irish, Italian, Polak immigrants and Puerto Rican immigrants, they're all Catholic. Uh, so there is a sort of uniting force that religion plays in the original film. And that's mm. pretty well lost in this film. I, there, there's, in fact, you, you almost don't get any, like Maria never prays to the Virgin. Uh, Catholicism's pretty well scrubbed. From the, I think, you know, she wears, she wears a cross around her neck. There's one scene in the, in the boxing gym uh, after Bernardo dies, where a couple of his compatriots they they, they light a candle at a, a little altar of the Virgin and they 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 say a little prayer. Uh, so there's a little bit, and of course, I know I know that you want to talk about the cloisters scene. Uh, yeah. Some of West Side Story's kind of most obvious nods to organized religion, but I, I was a little uh, I won't say disappointed. They made different choices, but uh, the, the there's not a lot of Catholicism in in Spielberg's in Spielberg's film, and the way that Robert Wise's film I think does play up some of those more uh, kind of Catholic elements. Yeah, fair enough. I did like, though, the Tony and Maria sort of meeting and dancing underneath the uh, Yeah, under bleachers. the bleachers. Wasn't that a sweet moment? It, it read as much more realistic. And I don't know, like as a kid who often hung out behind the bleachers at school dances, never getting up to anything inappropriate. Let me just be very clear about that. I didn't of happen to, not. I don't happen. I wasn't a, I wasn't a fan of the, uh, of the uh, compulsive heterosexuality that was a high school dance. So bleachers were a great place to hang out with my friends and um, actually have a fun time. So I love the realism of that, right? That, yeah. um, that, that, that is a place where you can get away from it all. Um, and then the sweetness of her, I mean, here we have Jerome Robbins' original choreography, right? The, the kind of outstretched arms and the snap-snap thing that they do, their little kind of meet-cute dance. Having Maria basically teach it to Tony, I thought was such a, such a sweet moment. Uh, really, yeah. really sold me on their kind of their relationship. Um, and, and yeah. you know, you, you, have to, you have to believe in Tony and Maria's at least lust at first sight, right? The whole, the whole yes. thing in some ways kind of hinges on that moment. Without believability in that initial meet-cute moment at the gym, the whole story kind of falls apart. Um, and I, I, the, the moment really worked for me because of the way it was filmed and the way it was choreographed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it worked for me too. And it worked better than the sort of the spotlight and then sort of moving into some sort of fantasy love right. world. Like this made... This made their falling in love and the forbidden nature of mm-hmm. their love, which I know we'll talk a bit about the the four gay guys who put together West Side Story. <laughs> um, but I think that is a theme here is impossible relationships, yeah. um, forbidden love, uh, place now between a Puerto Rican girl and a Polish boy. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I as, a, as a gay man who grew up in the era where, uh, uh, where, where, where same-sex relationships were, were just not accepted, um, I, I pick up, the, I mean, that theme just reads to me loud and clear. And, I, mm-hmm. and so the realism of having to uh, find a, a separate space, yeah. uh, almost anticipating the sentiment of somewhere, yeah. right? 
Yeah, there is uh, a place for us, and it is behind the bleachers. <laughs> and it's behind the bleachers. Yeah, it's behind. The it bleachers. also raises the stakes of their right. Like, I mean, when they when they emerge from behind the bleachers, you really get a visceral sense of Bernardo's fear, right? Like yes. that everybody everybody saw them go back there, and the assumption there is that Tony took liberties with her, right? So you yes. really and that and that's something that I mean, I I, I think there's. You know, like that, that conflict is there in the original stage production, right? That the officer later, you know, like there was, there was a thing that happened at the dance at the gym, right? Where you, you know, the two of you did. But here we get the sense that everybody in this world knows Tony and Maria have a thing for each other. So their love is hidden, but not all that hidden. It's basically just right. forbidden. It's actually not hidden. Um, because better. because it happens back there in the bleachers and everybody, you know, we all know what happens behind the bleachers at a high school dance. So it, right. it does, I think, really kind of, uh, it, it, it raises the raises the intensity of the of the push of the world, right? They, they they and they are very aware. They say several times over the course of their courtship, "We're going to get in trouble for this." They right. are very they're not innocent in that sense. They know that what they're doing is forbidden. That they need to be really careful. That it will have consequences, which of course it does. Which of course it does. And there's a there's a lovely moment after the the mambo after the dance at the gym. Um, where Tony is just back to your, we've lost the Catholic, uh, the Catholic school gymnasium. Uh, but Tony's walking to Maria's house or seeking to find where Maria lives um, and singing, of course, Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least I saw, and uh, you, you've seen it twice. So I will, when I see it again, I'll just double check that this actually happened. But for today, it actually happened. Uh-huh. Um, when he sings the words, Maria, say it loud, and there's music playing, say it soft, and it's almost like praying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the He's sort of in a puddle. There's there's uh, Is that when he's walking across the, like the tennis courts or whatever, and the, like, yeah. the floodlights come on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way that Spielberg has refracted the lights, it looks like he's standing in the midst of a stained glass. Oh, oh, interesting. Window. Which is an interesting kind of call forward to what's going to happen at the cloisters, right? I mean, yes. in some ways, Spielberg, I think, doesn't doesn't uh, play up the, the Catholic imagery. He does, uh, in some ways, uh, literalize the churchiness of that wedding scene, right? Yeah. Taking it out of the bridal shop, um, losing the, the sweetness, I suppose, or the cutesiness, if you want, of the, like, you know, the parents, arranging the parents. And, I mean, it's, it's the only sense that we ever get of Tony and Maria's parents in that scene, the bridal shop, where they kind of introduce one another, if you will, to the, to the figures that are their parents. Um, but here, you know, they're at, the, they're at the cloisters. It is literally, you know, they are literally in a church of a kind, some, what, yes. 13th century Spanish altar, probably, um, kneeling before it. And, uh, yes. and, and, you know, playing up all the stained glass imagery, right? Like the light in that scene is, is pretty remarkable. How they ever get one, like, you know, nobody ever walks in on them. Which, and I've been to the cloisters, like that doesn't happen. So I have lots of questions there. But whatever, right? It's a film. We don't, right. we don't look for literalism. Well, it also, I thought, what, what the cloister scene did for me, and I love one hand, one heart. I know it's schmaltzy. <laughs> you, and, um, you and Bernstein, you can. Uh, Lenny will, yeah, will you and Lenny will celebrate that. Um, it, it's gorgeous, in my humble opinion. I, it, it appeals to me. But it also took me uh, very directly to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, it, made, it made that connection uh, visually, anyhow. Yep. Um, in a, an, and from what, what for me was a very powerful way. So it was like. Uh, yes, we're in we're in New York in the 1950s, mm-hmm. but we're also in Verona. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially that scene in the well, in the yeah. in the actual cloister, right, where it really does yeah. feel very Italian. Um, yeah, it is. It is in some ways that is its most kind of obvious nod to the source material. 
Um, yeah, and really does work. I mean, one hand, one heart is interesting, isn't it? We didn't we didn't talk too much about one hand, one heart when we, other than noting that Sondheim hates it because it's all it's all a Bernstein <laughs> lyric and he he doesn't like it. I, I was listening to a, a friend of mine talk on another podcast about you know the 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 frequency with which that song has been used at weddings and yes. her befuddlement over that because she said it's it's such a weird thing to sing at a wedding because it's all about death, right? Yes. Like make of our hands one hand. I mean, I that's another thing I want to talk. You know, is that is that is that the image we want of a, of a healthy relationship where like we, we lose our individualities and get kind of fused into one thing? I've got a lot of questions there. We can bracket that. Um, but, but basically the song is about, you know, I will love you till I die. And she was saying, God, that's so morbid. What a weird thing to sing at a wedding. Especially, I mean, in the context of like West Side Story where they sing it just before, you know, Tony's going to get shot. But, you know, the, the, I, I feel like that's the same conversation that I often have with couples that I'm doing premarital counseling with because so much, so much of the vows that we do in the Anglican tradition are till death do we part. Um, yeah. and, and pretty regularly I'll have couples who are like, that, that feels, you know, I don't really want to name the fact on my wedding day that we're going to die. And right. there's a piece of me that thinks like, gosh, what better occasion to think about your mortality than in the context of these ostensibly lifelong vows that you're making. Um, there is an interest, in some ways, like West Side Story is, I don't know, it's doing something really interesting by putting, and this is Shakespeare, I suppose, this is Romeo and Juliet, putting love and death right next yes. to each other in such a, um, such a visceral way. Um, I don't know, like, I'm, 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 still, I'm still kind of, I don't know, I'm still kind of musing on the nature of vows, the nature of one hand, one heart, which is that shows, you know, that's, that's the vows, those, that's the sacrament of marriage, as West Side Story has it. And it really is in the context, both Tony and Marie, and I think the Spielberg film plays this up even more than the original material, both of them are very aware the stakes of this love are high, and the likelihood that we will die as a result of this love is there. And they know that. In some ways, like, it it makes even more powerful for me what's happening in that cloister scene. They really yes. are giving themselves to each other in the context of we might not make it out of this alive. And yes. it's still worthwhile for us to say this to one another. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I, I feel like it, it fuels the fire of their passion, uh, right? Like we have to, I mean, in some ways this is, this is rent, no day but today. We could die tomorrow, so let's, you know, like they're not, <laughs> not going to wait for a priest to, send, to, you know, make this thing official. They're just going to go to bed together the next day. Uh, they're young, they're in love, and they know to a certain degree, I think they know they only have a limited amount of time. And, and One Hand, One Heart, it's not a song that I love, but does work at that level. It really uh, makes it clear that the context of these vows is the, you know, is the very real possibility of one or both of their deaths. Um, and yeah. there's something, I don't know, there's something really interesting to me about how clear-eyed the show is in terms of the cost of that kind of love. Make of our hands one hand Make of our hearts one heart Make of our vows one last vow Make our 
I think it's it's what adds to the the depth of of emotion within mm-hmm. that within that scene yeah. is you know what's going to happen to these kids yep. and they and are, they know too that's i think that's yeah, yeah there's a sense that they're they're aware maybe not maybe not liter- you know not not everything but yeah there's a there's a there's a deep kind of bittersweetness to that to that number yeah and i hope we let's come back to this when we talk about company because mm. as opposed to one hand one heart and the romance of giving uh making of uh then company really deconstructs the whole institution of marriage you're always sorry you're always grateful you know uh it's the little things you do together um that make perfect relationships Mm um so uh, uh sondheim uh uh certainly uh evolved in his, uh, or or did he just de- deconstruct? Or did he devolve? <laughs> or devolve into the whole institution of marriage from the the sweetness and the sadness. It's both mm-hmm. sweet and sad, one mm-hmm. hand, one heart, into the cynicism and realism of of uh, of married relationships. By the time we get to company, but yeah. that's further down our. No, but l- let's do flag that now because I think that's a really interesting. I mean, that's one of the things that really interests me about Stephen Sondheim is the evolution of his, you know, this is a guy who was famously a bachelor until I think his 60s. And then, as I understand it, fell in love rather dramatically and kind of full, fully, you know, kind of in in, in an almost sort of Tony and Maria sort of teenager sort of way in his 60s with a much younger man um, whom he lived with, I think, until his death. So Sondheim himself, I think, traces a really interesting trajectory around commitment and, um, and in some ways, I mean, in, I, I want to read Company in many ways as sort of his cri de corps in the 1970s, right? Like, there's something yes. enticing to me about this, but boy, it comes at a cost. And that may not be for everybody. You know, there is a deep ambivalence. And in some ways, that's how I read Sondheim's own ambivalence around one hand, one heart, right? This is Bernstein's thing. He's, you know, he loves this song. He wants this song. But Sondheim and the rest of them are like, this is like, no, like we're not. This is schlocky. Like I'm not, you know, that you get the sense that they are not Tony's looking for their Maria. They are not Maria's looking for their Tony, maybe more to the point. (laughs) Um, But yet Bernstein, in some ways, he's almost Oscar Hammerstein at this point, right? Like this very full-throated embrace of sentimentality. I mean, there again i don't you know i don't know enough of bernstein's biography to you know married to a woman i think you know they had children together i assume that that was a productive heterosexual relationship but also you know having affairs along the side with men so uh you know this this is a guy for whom you know i'm guessing uh the promise that is embodied in this song of something so um visceral and pure in a, a sexual and romantic relationship that is, you know, like will only last 24 hours till death do we part is a, you know, it's a pretty time limited stamp on that. Um, and there's a certain kind of, um, what do we want to say? Authenticity, purity, passion mm-hmm. that can come out of a relationship with such a limited time horizon. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it's, Bernstein. And it, 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 for me, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, the other big transposition of a scene um is moving i feel pretty yeah. from an earlier part of the of the of the book to uh a post bernardo's death which maria is not aware of and she works as a night cleaner at uh gimbel's um the used to be the counterpoint to macy's in mm-hmm. downtown manhattan um and sings it with the other cleaning staff 
And here's what I thought. I, so I thought it was a brilliant uh, repositioning of that song. Um, it gave Maria a lot of character. She's clearly a leader. She's clearly got uh, a presence amongst that community of night cleaners. Um, but uh, what really struck me was she, uh, the, the, uh, Spielberg places it amongst the mannequins yeah. in middle-class white American poses mm-hmm. on a beach, in a living room, and just again, I mean, I should be more used to it now, but the subtle influences of white supremacy mm-hmm. within popular American culture, um, all the mannequins are white. Uh, they're all nuclear families. Um, and and there she is, one aspiring to yep. Yep. the economic success uh, that that does. But I don't think the uh, the the overtones of racism are lost in either Kushner or on Spielberg in setting it in that place in that time. Yeah, it ties her in some ways. It ties her to Anita during you know during during America as Spielberg stages it. You know the the Anita and the girls dance right up to the marquees that are there against the rubble, right? And they show Lincoln Center and all the and Anita. I think the line is something like, "I'll have a high rise apartment." And I don't remember what the but the response is like, "You're never right, like you're never gonna get one of those apartments, Anita. They're not building the Lincoln Center apartments for us and for our kind." But you do get the sense that for for Anita and Maria, there is a kind of aspiration, right? And that's I mean I think that's the brilliant thing about the way that I feel pretty gets, it's not so much I feel pretty because I'm in love. It's I feel pretty when I'm in the context of a white lady's living room with this scarf around my neck. So it makes sense of all of the language she uses in that song, right? I yes. feel, in fact, I think, I think the marquee on the little sign above Maria as she's singing is like witty fashion for the fall or something like that. So she's, she's literally lifting advertising copy, right? I feel pretty and witty and bright. Um, all of the, all of the kind of, I mean, you know, the, the, the critique, Stephen Sondheim's critique of that song, right? She's, she's singing like she's in a Noel Coward drawing room. Right. Well, Kushner's kind of literalizing that, right? She is. She's in at least the mid-century America version of a Neil Coward, of a Noel Coward drawing room. And she wants that life. Or at least a part, part of that life is, is enticing for her, right? As you yes. say, there's, there's, I think there's also a sense of like, I'm never going to, you know, like that life is not really being offered to me. Nobody who's in that world wants me in that world. So the, the, the separation is clear, right? She is there with her cleaning ladies. They are all wearing their, their smocks, their, you know, their identical uniforms. But when nobody's around and when nobody's watching, they, they ape that world. Some of it's, you know, aspirational. And some of it is a critique of that world, right? Like we're, yes. we're, we're never going to be invited into this thing so we can throw sand at each other and also there is a kind of um there's a sort of glorying in yes. in the beauty of that world i think that, that that ambivalence to me um rings so true uh in terms of i mean yes. in terms of the code switching right that they're you know that the american dream is something that these characters aspire to even as they know it's never gonna be mine in the way that it is so um is so just blithely assumed by people who have it and that, yes. that gap, I think the, the show really, uh, it heightens our sense of the stakes for these characters and, and the tensions that they're living in. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright and I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel And so pretty That I hardly can believe I'm real See that pretty girl in that mirror there 
feel stunning and then dancing feel like running and dancing for joy but i'm loved by a pretty And can we do a, a, a shout out to Rachel Ziegler? Yeah, she's pretty. Uh, she's pretty I great, isn't she? For a moment or two, I thought she was absolutely perfect as Maria. I did too. Um, she uh, she's too short for dear Ansel, who's six foot four. <laughs> I mean, everybody's too a, short for Ansel. He, he's a tall boy. Yeah. Um, but her capacity to sing, uh, emote. Her facial, uh, her facial expression, her full-bodied um, embrace of this role yeah. for a first-time actor on the on the screen um, is just uh, fabulous. And while I'm doing shout-outs and gushing, uh, Ariana Debose, yeah, oh Anita, my gosh, is a performance. Uh, that everybody should for the see ages yeah we knew we knew we would love her we came into it expecting her to steal every scene she was in because we saw her in Schmigadoon. we we know she's a star but boy howdy every time she's on screen you can't take your eyes off of her in some ways i mean she really i wouldn't say steals but um a boy like that you know which i mean is, has always been anita's grief song but no more so than when you i mean you almost can't, I mean, I, I almost lose a little bit of Maria in that song. And actually Spielberg kind of, I mean, so much of, even when she's singing, I have a love and it's all that I have, right? Maria's kind of soaring anthem to her love. Spielberg's camera stays on Ariana DeBose's face, which is exactly yes. where it should be, right? Watching her process, my, my boyfriend, husband, it's not really clear. I don't think they're legally married, but they're clearly living together. Yes. Um, my my man has been killed by you know by Mar- I, and I just saw the guy who killed boyfriend. him walk out of my best friend's bedroom, and so I mean like here again right none of this is all of this was in the material from the beginning but the the visceralness of what what Anita is facing in that moment and then to watch Ariana Debose go from wanting to tear Maria's hair out, right? How dare you do this? To being able then to sing the duet with her at the end. When love yes. comes on so strong, there is no right or wrong. Like, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing transition that Ariana DeBose makes. That, that, is, a, that is a moment um, and completely sells, completely sells. At least I found myself um, absolutely, absolutely buying it, right? That like yes. Anita is able to, to get to a place where she can understand or at least sympathize with um, what's going on for Maria, which is which is in some ways like kind of a, I don't know that I want her to.
you know like there's a right. piece of me that almost wants anita to say like no <laughs> this is oh, you know no, like, anita no yeah <laughs> like for the i think for the first time i found myself really kind of siding with anita in this right like yeah. this this love thing that you know your your uh, your puerto rican friend has fallen in love with a white boy and has some kind of fantasy about the you know like you need to stop this right like somebody needs to stop this this is not it's not healthy for maria it's not good for anybody like i mean all of my sympathies are with Anita. And part of, the, part of that, I think, is just because Ariana DeBose is so compelling. Um, so compelling. And I think so it really sets up the rape scene then. Yeah. Uh, may, yeah. I was much more affected by that mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this film than I think I have been in any time I've seen West Side Story previously. I mean, it's always horrific, yeah. but usually it's kind of awkwardly staged, mm-hmm. um, especially in a stage version. It's kind of hard to show what's going on. You certainly don't want to show too much about what's going on. Yeah. You want to give the sense. Uh, and Spielberg is not is not gratuitous. He does yeah. not uh, uh, but you just know what's going on in the scene back yeah. at the drugstore and that it's her yeah. and that it's her, that, that it's Anita who's brought the, brought the message to Tony. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because she's, because she's been converted, if you like, by the power of Maria's, of Maria's statement. Yeah. No, it, it it's a devastating scene. Um, I mean, some, I, th- I think because of the, the dance elements to it, I think maybe that's in the original. They, they try to make Anita dance. So there's that, there's that sort of turning her greatest. I mean, you know, if Ariana Bose is anything in this film, she's an incredible dancer. We get oh, to see how Anita comes alive when she dances. So to then have that be the means by which the boys, I mean, to have that be the way that the boys attack her. Right, making her dance for them, and then the way that Spielberg uses the two jet girls, Graziella and I forget the other one's name, who try to stop it, try to stop it, and then get thrown physically, thrown out of the shop, and they're there watching what's happening. I mean, it is it is chill. It's a it's a horrific, as you say, not gratuitous, but uh, really does uh, illustrate how. I mean, how, and then I mean, you know, I've I've heard I've heard Rita, Rita Moreno interviewed about the rape scene in the 1961 film and how. Yes. Uh, how deeply that experience scarred her. Um, yes. To then have her be the one who, as Valentina, right, who comes upstairs in the in the in the place of Doc in the original and stops it, and then to give Rita Moreno finally, you know, sixty years later, the words that you you know you long for somebody to say to these boys, right? You you dishonor yourselves, you dishonor your dead, and I mean. Yes. And and to have it coming out of the out of the mouth of the woman who played Anita sixty years ago and experienced the I mean the awfulness of that yeah. of that of that I don't know that there was something about that that was so layered and so uh, oh, so yes. devastating to me it, it's a pretty it's, powerful moment it's a hugely powerful moment and just while we're on uh, uh, Valentina on Rita Moreno um, eighty nine years old now <laughs> she just had her ninetieth birthday. Probably in the filming, because I think another piece of the back the back backstory of this is some of this was filmed through pandemic times and yeah. so forth. Um, she's credited as being uh, one of the executive producers mm-hmm. of the of the film. Um, I thought the creation of her character by Kushner uh, is brilliant yeah. um, because here's a Puerto Rican woman married to uh, probably. Italian, Portuguese, Polish, yeah. Doc. Um, so uh, the original Doc 
is out of the scene. She's running the drugstore. Tony's living in her basement. Um, he sings, and I think it was a great moment, uh, something's coming mm -hmm. to her. To her, yeah. And that gave it an audience and a direction uh, and a motivation for his excitement as opposed to him just kind of singing it into the wind, mm -hmm. which, which I loved. But then giving her somewhere at the end yeah. as a solo song yeah. just to sing at a table and of course the the us the place for us mm -hmm. is i think in the first instance her and doc yeah. right right and then tony and maria mm -hmm. and then just kind of in ever expanding circles like a widening yeah. uh a widening circle uh, the us of of difference and all of that sort of thing again i found the uh, that just a richly rewarding uh and deeply deeply moving moment is a time for us someday a time for us time together with time to spare, time to learn, time to care. Someday, somewhere, we'll find a new way of living. We'll find a way of forgiving. It's like, what are you, you going to do with somewhere in a film like this? It was already, as, you know, it's kind of an iconic moment, but also a potentially very schlocky moment, right? And giving it to giving it to Valentina, giving it really to Rita Moreno. I mean, at that point, it's like, yes, she's she's Valentina, but I don't know. She she carries Rita Moreno into the into the film in such an interesting way. Um, that that to me is really about the only thing you can do with somewhere in 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 a version of West Side Story like this one, right? Give it give it to Rita Moreno. Have it be as you say, right? Not just about Tony and Maria. This is about the impossibility of every kind of forbidden love. This is about the impossibility of the first Puerto Rican actress to win an Academy Award sixty years ago. And in some ways, like you know, look how far we've come. And in other ways, like look how far. I mean, you know, like <laughs> nothing we has changed. Like yeah. nothing. And that's and that's the crushing sense of that song is. I mean, and this is Valentina's character into a certain degree, but it's also Rita Moreno, I think, right? Like, you know, 60 years ago, we thought something was happening and look where we are. And yes, there's a place for us, but oh my gosh, we're still not, like so much work still to do. 
um, there is a, I don't know, there's a real kind of ambivalence to somewhere. I feel like when you, when it's being sung by Rita Moreno at 90, um, representing everything she represents, having gone through everything she's gone through. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty affecting moment, not a triumphant moment. Uh, in some ways it's, it's a lament somewhere is almost a lament in this. And, and that feels, that feels right to me. That, that choice felt right to me. Well, because this was, uh, the film was also sort of put together in the whole Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd time, which made cool um, one of the, another one of the chilling moments where I thought the choreography, the storytelling, the development of character, um, uh, as you say, uh, playing getaway with a gun, choreographed Mm -hmm. um, about guns being cool um and and tony uh being a reluctant but not too hesitant participant in the game of getaway yeah uh he knows the power of a gun Mm -hmm. um and of course the irony is this is going to be the gun uh that takes his life yeah that shoots him um uh but i thought uh playing that on the pier um with with uh riff who I think as a character is the most developed uh, yeah. presentation of Riff I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, Fe- Mike Feist, I think, is the actor who plays Riff. And he's he's excellent. Does some really yeah. interesting things with Riff. Yeah, you really get, I mean, in some ways he's, he is the avatar. And this also to me feels like a very contemporary story, right? I, I mean, all, as you say, everything about this version of, of West Side Story is 2020, 2021, right? It's set in the 1950s, yes. but it is a story about contemporary America. This is about Black Lives Matter. This is about immigration as we experienced in the Trump era. And to, to your point about Riff, right? This is the avatar for every disenfranchised, lower middle class. I mean, and, and you know, and the economics of Riff's situation are so much... Uh, more blatant in this script, right? And the, uh, the the inspector Shrank even says to them, right? How come you guys didn't get out? How come you didn't move out like you're, like everybody else? You know, who was your parents and your grandparents' generation did? They're all living in the suburbs now. They're you know like they they're marrying girls that you would never get a crack at. What are you doing here in the ghetto? You know why why are you still here? And you get the sense that you know this is the only place we know how to be. Um, but the the kind of deep anger, the sense of of disenfranchisement, right? I mean, in some ways, like Riff is. In, in one of the most contemporary characters I feel like in the show, right? We see Riff all over our world right now, right? He's, he's a proud boy. He's, you know, he's the guy. Yes. Uh, I mean, I love the scene where he buys the gun, right? Like, and, and the promise of what that gun means to Riff. It's like, we can't talk about gun legislation in America, I feel like, as, as progressives until we can understand that scene and what that gun represents for a character like Riff, um, you know, and I, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, you know, sanction or legitimate what's, what's going on there, but he does bring that existence to life in a really beautiful way. Um, and, and in a way that doesn't sugarcoat it, right? Like, and the, the deep violence, the deep fear, the xenophobia and the racism that are so, uh, so deep in a character like Riff. I thought Mike Feist's performance was, was amazing, but in some ways he's, he's one of the most interesting characters in the, in the piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. What they're able to do. And 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 really makes riff into more than just a cipher yep. into uh, a, again and, and and this is really all about the power of the backstory, which is so well developed in Tony in Bernardo uh, in the whole setting of it around the destruction of the neighborhood yeah. to make way for the Lincoln Center. It's Kushner's brilliance here yep. um, that uh, that really elevates this material from being a period piece in the 1950s mm-hmm. to, as you say, it's all about 
2020 it's about our world it's It's a great it's a great callback i'm sure that you know this that you know that the original film was filmed in what was going to be i mean you know so in some ways like it is uh what it's literalizing the environment of that 1961 film just moving it forward right because what 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 happened in that neighborhood before it was before it was demolished was they filmed west side story there so there is an interesting kind of um i don't know that that to me feels like and here again the film is very aware of its history, right? Rita Moreno is front and center, but here we are, it's Lincoln Center. This is the neighborhood that is being demolished for, uh, you know, for what's going to be Leonard Bernstein's great concert hall, uh, the yes. creator of the thing. And, you know, we know historically that what was filmed in that neighborhood was the, that original film before they demolished it. So the, the layers of... Um, of the West Side, the layers of that neighborhood. Now we, you know, we know that that wasn't actually really a Puerto Rican neighborhood, so there's some liberties being taken with the geography a little bit. Uh, but the the threat, the threat of gentrification, the threat of you know of of these characters being basically pushed out, both the the white characters and the Puerto Rican characters. Uh, I mean, if there's if there's an enemy in this version, it's it's class, it's you know, it's gentrification. Yes. That's the that's the great enemy, and, and you get the sense that you know. Uh, who there are certain forces in America that benefit from keeping the jets and the sharks at odds with one another, right? If as long as you can keep the jets and the sharks from uniting against their shared enemy, which is the you know the gentrification of their neighborhood and the economic system it represents, uh, you can kind of run roughshod over, and they're they're going to do your work for you, right? In some ways, that's that's the police position in this, right? Like as long as the jets and sharks are going to kill each other, uh, we don't have to you know we don't have to worry about it. There, there there is an economic advantage to keeping these gangs fighting with with with, with one another, and there's a little bit of a sense at the end there of like what might it mean for these two marginalized groups um, to to really kind of take on the deep threat that they're both facing, which is the changing the changing of this neighborhood? Um, yeah. Film doesn't really go there, but yeah, you know. it really it, in some ways it's a film about capitalism as much as it is anything else. Yeah, um, and and who benefits from racism, right? From promulgating a kind of streets racism yeah. um, that that allows us to kind of pretend that you know there's not a real threat here. Yeah, and when you were mentioning the sort of layers of of this of this film, I think it's part of one of the reasons that you and I love uh, love talking about musical theater because it picks up on what we've learned in our in our theological education about uh, dealing with scripture mm-hmm. and the layers of meaning and, and interpretation that any single text. Uh, that is placed before a congregation on a Sunday morning has. And um, it gets fascinating for those of us uh, who uh, have been brought into the process of exegesis, as it's called, uh, of learning about uh, the layers of interpretation of text. Um, uh, and, and so when bringing, when we bring those kind of skills and experience into looking at something like the movie of West Side Story, uh, it's not that um, that that identifying the different layers that are there uh, reduce the impact. In mm-hmm. fact, for me, uh, both with West Side Story and our conversation to date, and with the biblical text, uh, the complexity of it makes it more interesting, more vibrant, more inviting, uh, more mysterious, and uh, and wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. It's a midrash, isn't it? This film is a midrash. Uh, Kushner's, I, I believe, a practicing Jew, so he knows his he knows his Hebrew tradition to a certain degree. I think both, well, both he and Spielberg know what they're doing, which is this is this is two rabbis taking a biblical story 
and riffing on it. Uh, yeah. Pulling out detail, right? Like, and, and this is what Midrash does. It, it gives backstory to, you know, characters in biblical narratives that we, you know, the Bible doesn't give us backstories on all these people, but Midrashes do. They play with ideas. They pull out different threads in a way that is deeply honoring and consistent of the original material, but also seeking to improvise with it a little bit and make it speak to a different context. I think any good preacher does that in a good sermon, uh, but that's a deep tradition in Jewish exegesis of text. And that's what Spielberg and Kushner are doing. They're, they're, it's a midrash on a, you know, not, on a non-scriptural text, uh, but one that is certainly canonical, certainly a canonical yes. text. Uh, and a text, I mean, maybe to, maybe to kind of take it one, one step further, a text that has a lot of problems, a text that is a text of terror to some yes. people. Um, not seeking to necessarily quote unquote fix all of those problems, and the, and the film doesn't. I mean, you know, it's 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 not it's not perfect. Uh, it's still two, you know, we two white guys, uh, kind of you know. So it's it, it it by no means is this the definitive West Side Story, or even you know, a, uh, what I, I, I in some ways it, I think it, it's better in terms of of the way that it treats, especially the Puerto Rican characters, and and kind of responds to some of that critique. It's not perfect, but it is a really interesting. Um, it's a story about 2021, right? This, this is, this is West Side Story for our day, uh, doing some different things with it uh, and seeking to kind of find how, can, how, how does it come alive if we tell the story this way? Uh, and at that level, I think, what a successful uh, sermon, if you like. What a successful midrash on a text like this. So, so, Nathan, just maybe to wind it down here, what's your take on the theological statement um, when love comes so strong there is no right or wrong. Your love is your life. How do we, I mean, at first, I'll, 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 I'll respond to my own question, then I'm really interested in what you think. At first, I want to say, nah, right? Like, uh, love coming strong, there still is right and wrong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, my mind could go to a million places that I that I won't talk about, but uh, um on the other hand, just to be Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof, there is this sense of love being the ultimate uh, moral quality mm-hmm. that does dissolve certainly some of the societal norms around right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And certainly it is true, I think, uh, that your love is your life. Mm-hmm. Um you know, um, that 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 what you give allegiance to, what you focus on, uh, where you're directed in that sense of love does become the kind of organizing principle of your life. Yeah. But I struggle with the with the line. Yeah, there is no right or wrong. It's a, I mean, it's it's one. Uh, yeah. One level it's like, ah, what do we think about that theologically in the context of the scene? For Maria to say that to Anita, who has just yeah. lost her husband to Maria's boyfriend's violence. Uh, you know, like, here again, right? Like, in the context of uh, the 1961 film, in the context of when it's a Broadway musical, I go there. When it's Ariana DeBose in that role, it's like, no, you don't get to say that to her. She is grieving hard, and she has every... So, there is no right or wrong? No. What happened to Bernardo was wrong. And the film pulls no punches on this, right? Like, Tony chooses to knife him. It's not an accident. He, right. he sees what Bernardo has done to Riff. He turns and he thrusts the knife into Bernardo. He chooses violence. And it's wrong. I agree. So, 
so there's a way in which like yeah even at the level of the story it's like ah, i don't know that i can go there with you maria there is also something so um compelling to me about what she what she sings you know um i have a love and it's all that i have right or wrong whatever i, I you know I, I am and I his. Need him still or something. Yeah. yeah, but like basically any everything. I think what she says is everything he is. I am too. Yeah. Now we've just seen, and actually in some ways the film really illustrates everything Tony is, which is a guy with incredible violence at the heart of him. And I think Maria knows that because he's told her that story. She knows he's been in prison. They've had their moment at the cloisters. So my sense is Maria is in some way, I mean, we've always said, like, she's the priest of this thing. She's the moral center of West Side Story. I think that that yes. is probably the best way to understand Maria is that she is, she's the moral center of the, of the show. She knows everything that Tony is, and she loves him in spite or maybe because of everything he is. Uh, her love for Tony is a redemptive kind of love. It's, and what I want to say is it's about as close, I think, as West Side Story gets to the love of God. It's... Yeah. I mean, unconditional, ooh, that's a tricky thing. But basically, that's what she's saying, right? The love that I have for this guy is unconditional. I, I know at the level of, like, romance, I'm like, oh, girl, I don't know. That's a weird kind of fusing. At the level of theology, I think, what a powerful statement of, I know everything about this guy, and I love him anyway. The, yeah. My love for him is all that I have. So when love comes on so strong, there is no right or wrong. Your love is your yeah. life. In that context, yeah, when it's Rachel Ziegler singing it, I believe it. Um, although I have a lot of questions about the, the ethics of it. I agree. And, and as you said, I think at the end of our last conversation about West Side Story, and it struck me very powerfully watching the film, her, um, her ask after Tony has been shot and she's there in a moment mm -hmm. where she could turn the gun yeah. and she says, no, she says, no, she says, no, uh, in that way, she becomes, I think, an exemplar of breaking the cycle of violence. Uh, and she had every reason, um, every reason to to, 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 to to carry on the cycle, right? To, yep. to pick up the gun, to, to go on a shooting rampage. Mm -hmm. But she says no. Um, yeah. And she acts as a kind of moral compass, I think, uh, yeah. exemplar, if you want. Which, I mean, in some ways, like... And, and this is always there, but we, you know, it's all there in plain sight, but she's all, you know, I have a love is the, um, she's already done that, right? Like, it's not a surprise that she is able to, uh, to stop the cycle when she's mourning over Tony's body, because she did that when she was mourning over her brother's body and found yes. the power to forgive Tony because she loved him. Oh, I love that. You know, like, so in, in some ways, like, yeah. it's not a, you know, Maria has already done this once, so of course, she, not, 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 of course she can do it again, right? I, that, that robs that moment of its power. It is a powerful moment. Um, she is a character who, who can forgive. Maria is a character who can forgive. I think, we're, we're meant to believe, because the power of love is so strong in her, right? Yes. So if, if I read, when love comes on so strong, there is no right or wrong, as I know the power of forgiveness, that's not the same thing as saying there is no right or wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a deeper thing. It's saying, yes, there is right and wrong, and I, um, I'm going to choose to love through that, through yeah. the wrong, um, because I believe there's power in that love. At that level, I think what she's articulating is, I, I think, pretty dang close to the gospel. 
Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's kind of anticipated in somewhere, right? Yeah. We'll find a new way of living. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll find the power of forgiving somewhere. Yeah. Right. And the somewhere comes remarkably from inside this young Puerto Rican woman. Yeah. Um, who, as you say, because because she could forgive Tony killing her brother, mm-hmm. then she's not going to get drawn into that again. Yeah. And that she can for, she can forgive Chino for killing her lover. Yeah. 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 No, wow. there is something really powerful to me about that. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that that is the, I think, the only bit of the original Arthur Lawrence script that found its way. And I mean, you know, obviously the lyrics, but um, they kept Maria's final monologue, right? It's, it's all, I think, it's word for word what was in Arthur Lawrence's original book, which I'm, uh, my, my understanding is that's dummy dialogue. Lawrence said, I put that there thinking that Sondheim would turn it into a, turn it into a song, right? How many, how many bullets in this gun, show, Tino? Enough, enough for you, enough for you, enough for you. How many can I shoot and still have one left for me? I know how to, I know how to, I can kill now because I hate to. All of that, Lawrence says, that's dummy dialogue. I did not mean for that to make it into the final version. Uh-huh. Sondheim and Bernstein knew, right? Like, you, there's, not a, there's not a song there. <laughs> there's, there's no song there, Arthur. Uh, that, that moment needs to be spoken as a monologue. And, and Kushner kept that monologue for Maria. In some ways, I think it is the, uh, certainly I'm one of the most powerful moments in the show when yes. she when she says I I know I know how to I couldn't kill now I know how to hate um, so there is a there is a kind of character development arc there right like this is yeah. this in some ways this is different from her cradling comforting Tony after he comes to her after he's killed Bernardo um, she's she's seen the thing she loves the most be be gunned down and she hates she's she yeah. has uh, I don't I don't think it's Chino that she hates I think it's something like the system of violence that they are caught in. Um, but certainly Chino's the one with the gun, right? Like he, yeah. he is, he is the, he is the focus of her anger. And yet that, that does not, that doesn't win. That, that hatred doesn't win for Maria. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something really, there's something really powerful to me in that moment and, and kind of what she represents. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that she's the priest. As yeah. you say. She's, I mean, um, maybe this is the, the season of Advent. She is such a Marian figure, right? In some ways, um, this is, this is how I want to understand Mary. She's right? Maria. Yeah, I mean, the, the name is at that level, no accident, right? Say it loud and there's music playing. Say it soft and it's almost like praying, right? Like there's a reason that that iconic name. And I think for too often in the Christian tradition, Mary has been praised for her, you know, her traditional feminine virtues, right? Her submission, her meekness, her gentleness, right? She's pious. She's, you know, she's just kind of never puts up a fight. I think now we're, you know, we're looking more deeply at actually what Mary says in scripture, which is stuff like the Magnificat, right? The mighty will be cast down from their thrones. The lowly will be lifted up and realizing, oh no, like Maria in West Side Story, this is a woman who is a revolutionary. She's very politically engaged. she knows exactly what she's doing. She's in a world in which she's seen basically as a baby making factory and has no rights. So she's using her body, if you like, in order to say something very powerful to a world that is all about patriarchy and supremacy. And some of that, I feel like, you know, that's how I want to understand Maria in West Side Story too. She is the Madonna. She's, she's not the virgin maybe, but she is uh, bringing this kind of, she's a prophet. She's a prophet of a different kind of way. She's a preacher. She's an evangelist. She's a priest. She's carrying something in her body um, that has the power to change the world. You know, there's no, there's no second act of West Side Story yet, but 
you know, I, I wonder, you know, like she and she and Tony had that had their night, you know, like there Maria could very well be carrying Tony's child. We don't know that. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah. to think about that kind of that final image, I mean, there she is, you know, in her I think it's a blue dress, isn't it at the end? Right. I mean, uh, it's about as you've seen it twice. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is. It's about as kind of wow. iconic an image of the Madonna as you can find. And yeah. I don't want to sentimentalize that. I don't want that to be about, you know, meek acceptance. I think there's power yeah. there. And it's it's a, it's the kind of it's the power that Mary represents when she's understood as a revolutionary prophet. That's who Maria is. Wow. And we can't we can't end without just without saying a word or two about anybody's. Oh, dear uh, Iris Minas, yes. Fabulous uh, as anybody's. So we have a, a non-binary uh -huh. uh, transgender person, I guess, yes. as an actor. Non-binary, yeah. Um uh formerly in the uh, in the original in the stage play and in the movie, uh, a classic tomboy. Yep. Uh, but now transformed into so much more yeah. um, in in this version. And thank God for the depiction. Even though it's fleeting, I wanted more. Mm -hmm. um, but at two and a half hours, just to yeah. tell the, the base story. They do give anybody's their moment though I, I mean at that that moment at the door where they where they finally where they finally refer to anybody's as buddy boy which is all that all that this character has been looking for right we are i mean she anybody's is very 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 clearly established for us as a non-binary character as a uh, character who does you know does not identify as a girl she's not although the although the the jets keep trying to violently gender her as female she pushes back every every time my god um, and finally, at the end, she gets her she gets her moment. They see they see anybody's for who they are, um, and it's a pretty incredible. And it's I think it's in the context. It happens actually devastatingly just before the rape scene. Because then because the then anybody's is leaving and says to Anita as Anita shows up, leave. So there's you know as as soon as you have this sweet moment of recognition, it transitions immediately into the the horrible violence um, that happens to women's bodies in this yeah. in this thing. So it's you know it's not a not an unmixed victory, um, but a but a but a powerful performance by Iris Menas. Uh, so applause applause I, uh, I, I Irene Iris I forget I forget the actor's name, um, but so, an incredible so performance. Do you, so do you think we like this movie? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything good to do. say about it? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, if you haven't seen it, um, and, you know, I, I the other the, the last thing I'll say just to urge uh, our listeners, if you can see it, uh, better seen on a big screen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm for sure those dance numbers, if nothing fine. else. My yeah, goodness. Yeah, for the dance for America, <sighs> which yeah. is was stunning. I kept stunning. saying, wow, out loud. Yep. Um, Even the uh, the opening the opening sequence, I got chills several times. Was like yeah. watching them move through the streets and the and the Jerome Robbins choreography, that expansive jet kind of. Oh gosh, it's just it's a stunning, stunning film. So there you go. Yeah, go see it. Go see it. And when we talk next, we're gonna uh, move back to working through the Sondheim canon, uh, more or less chronologically, with some. Uh, and we're gonna talk about uh, about Gypsy, uh, the, a family-oriented musical. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Another <laughs> another film all about women's bodies and the ways in which they uh, serve as currency in different eras of American popular culture. So that should be fun to talk about. Get your uh, get your stripper on. Everybody got everybody's got to have a gimmick. See you next time. See you next time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. 
Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.